Amen. And good morning. It's great to be gathered with you all uh, for worship this morning. And I know some are with us at home or uh, maybe at the beach or at the lake or somewhere, but it is also, I'm, I'm so thankful that as a church we have responded to this worldwide crisis with creativity, uh, but also with caution. And uh, I'm thankful to be joined together, uh, both with you here in this room, uh, but with those who are gathering with us via TV or live stream. So in the past five years, the Broadway production Hamilton, about the life of our founding father, Alexander Hamilton, has taken our nation by storm. The show has romanticized the revolutionary period but by glossing over an extended period of time in a two and a half hour show, or the way most of us are greeted by the founding fathers with a few pages in our high school history book, this tends to prevent us from seeing what, about dur what during this time was so, well, revolutionary. What made it a time that was so divided and distanced and full of discord and dissension. Now, we've been spending this summer working through the Sermon on the Mount that's recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's Jesus' longest recorded sermon in Scripture, and it gives us a portrait of the world that we all long for, a world of peace and harmony and justice. And Jesus includes in this sermon a plea to ask God for the kingdom of heaven to come and reign on earth as it does in heaven. So how do we apply the teachings of this sermon in the here and now, in the 21st century? What does the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven look like in a world that is divided and distanced from each other and full of discord and dissension? When such a world produces distrust in us of each other and of our leaders, where we feel like we are smarter and better, like we are the ones that know what's best and not those other people. When we live in a unique place and time with tools at our disposal to publish our thoughts on a whim, when all these things are taken into consideration, what can history teach us? What, or how can a first century sermon by Jesus inform a divided and distanced discorded and dissented 21st century. The genius of Hamilton is that it, it, it has transported the issues of the 18th century to our time today, allowing us to see, as the old adage says, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Or as the book of Ecclesiastes tells us, there is nothing new under the sun. So with that in mind, let's jump into our DeLoreans or our TARDISes or use our PIM particles or whatever method of time travel you prefer. And let's see what we can learn from those who came before us. Now, you probably remember hearing about the Boston Tea Party in high school when in December of 1773, a group under cover of night snuck into Boston Harbor and dumped the modern equivalent of $1 million worth of British tea into the sea. Now, British Parliament took this as an affront and responded in kind. 
by punishing those in the colonies, by imposing more sanctions on Boston in the spring of 1774. And this was an attempt to crack down on the colonials. This only rallied the other American cities to Boston's aid, however, which produced the opposite effect of what Parliament had intended. The result was that on both ends of the Atlantic, there were those who sided with the British and those who sided with the Americans in each country. It was a time for them that was divided, that was distant, that was full of discord and dissension. Similarly, these things were present when our scripture for today was written as well. After the Sermon on the Mount was given, but before it was recorded in Matthew's gospel, James wrote this letter. Now, many believe that James had the Sermon on the Mount in mind when he wrote this letter because it's known for its emphasis on how to live out our faith. This too was a divisive time. Animosity grew between the Jewish and the Gentile believers as well as between Christians and Jews. And the Romans were beginning to crack down even more on those living throughout Israel. Now James, if you've ever read Paul, James is not as theologically heavy as Paul is. He's not trying to influence what we know as much as he is trying to influence what we do with what we know. Now, you heard the, the passage read earlier. James addressed three things in verses 19 through 27 that we can learn. Uh, he addressed this to his readers, but it is it addressed to us uh, today as well. And the three things that he emphasized or that he addressed were anger, humility, and action. So let's start with anger. James implores his readers to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. He goes on to say that human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires of us. James urges his readers to get rid of this type of anger. And apparently this was a, a, a common thing in, in the uh, Christians of that day. Because we find even in Paul's list of, of things for us to do to incorporate into our life of faith. Most notably in Romans chapter 13 and Galatians chapter 5. He says things like this that those engaging in sexual immorality, debauchery, drunkenness, and idolatry will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kinds of things that we and the average believer in James's day would agree is filth. You notice that James in, in his passage label, he said, get rid of all moral filth that is prevalent. And this is usually what our minds go to when we hear moral filth. But this issue of human anger had to be something that the Christians of the day were struggling with because Paul also says this in his list of sins that, will not, uh, that those who practice them will not inherit the kingdom of God. He also lists discord, dissension, and fits of rage, saying that sowers of discord and dissension will have no place in God's kingdom. Those hit a little, little bit more between the eyes for the audience of James's day and Paul's day and also for our day. Now, there certainly is a place for righteous anger. There's a place for fighting against the things of this world that are wrong. And in the close of this passage, James would say that faith that is acceptable to God is that which looks after orphans and widows. In other words, being quick to listen. 
Looking after widows and orphans is another way to say, give a voice to those whom society does not give a voice to, those that are neglected by society. So this also incorporates putting into action what we say we believe. But James also qualifies this in verse 27 by saying that we must do this while keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. And he uses that word pollution to draw our minds back to his earlier use of the word filth. To combat succumbing to human anger, James tells his congregation to accept humility, which is a key characteristic of those who call themselves Christian. To be a Christian requires an act of humility. We have to be willing to admit that we've done something wrong. We can't call ourselves Christians unless we do that. But unfortunately, many of us stop there. What requires a great deal of humility for all of us, becoming followers of Jesus, can also become the source of a great deal of hubris for many of us. I'll say again, what requires a great act of humility for all of us, becoming a follower of Jesus, can also become the source of a great deal of hubris for many of us. Ironically, our faith can become a badge that we wield and we use to harm others. Now, faith is something to be proud of, but not at the expense to others. The call to be humble as we follow God is found all over Scripture, but probably the most notable point where this contrast is vividly pictured between a humble faith and a hubristic faith is the parable that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, where the Pharisee comes to the temple and hubristically before God thanks God that he is not like the sinners of his day. Whereas the tax collector falls on his knees and humbly cries out to God for mercy. It is the tax collector who is closer to the kingdom of God in this scenario, according to Jesus. We shouldn't be known for our hubris, but we are. James says the better posture is a active stance of humility. Active meaning continual. Continually admitting that we continually do wrong, that we continually need the salvation of God. The tool that we use on ourselves to prevent falling victim to man's anger, to human anger. Which leads to James's plea for his readers to act on their faith. James compares this to a man looking in a mirror and walking away immediately forgetting what he saw. The point of looking into a mirror is to see what needs to be corrected. The scriptures, our worship together in here, our Bible study with one another, all of these are glimpses into the mirror to see what needs to be corrected into our, in our lives. And James is saying that every time you do that, you're looking into a mirror. If we do those things, if we worship together, if we Bible study together, if we study our scriptures in daily quiet time, if we do that and we walk away and do nothing with them, if we don't change something about ourselves each time, if we don't cry out to mercy each time, then what is the point? James says if that's what you do, you deceive yourself. Don't only hear the word, do what it says. Now, this is a deep dive into the background of this passage, so I want you to stay with me. Are you guys still with me? I hope so. <laughs> it's important for us to grasp 
that James isn't just blowing smoke here. My wife pointed out to me one time that if anybody was a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, it would have been James. This James, we believe, is James, the half-brother of Jesus, which means he would have been the son of Joseph and Mary. He would have grown up in Jesus' household. He would have heard the word. But he was not a believer in Jesus as the Messiah, the scriptures tell us, until after the resurrection. James was a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, if ever there was one. We also know that he rose to prominence as the head of the church in Jerusalem, which would have had a strong presence of Jewish people like James who had converted from Judaism to Christianity. And if you're familiar with church history, this letter of James was probably written between the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. After the death of Stephen, persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and many of the believers were scattered from there. As a result of this, the message of Jesus actually began to spread. Acts chapter 11 tells us that the believers who were scattered used this as an opportunity to share the gospel with other Jews and eventually even with the Gentiles. In other words, James's church had been persecuted and dispersed. They were forcibly distanced from meeting together by their authorities. But they saw that as an opportunity. In the face of division, distance, discord, and dissension, they became doers of the word and not hearers only. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But for now, this is the backdrop for James's words to his congregation, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, to be humble. They echo the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount who said that when struck on one cheek, Turn the other. Jesus also said in the same sermon to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That if you only love those who love you, how are you any different from the people who persecute you? What does this have to do with us? Perhaps you haven't noticed, but we are in an election year. I read recently of one faith leader and media personality who declared of our current day that Jesus' command to turn the other cheek is, quote, no longer sufficient. James would disagree with this. And while we are facing division, distance, discord, and dissension here and now, it would be foolish to think that it is nothing the people of God haven't experienced and overcome before. James's plea here to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry are not hollow words. Let's get back in our TARDIS or our DeLorean or get our pin particles back out and let's go back to the 1770s and visit John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, who took the words of James and Jesus very seriously during the division, distance, discord, and dissension of his day while ministering in England. The discussion of what to do with those rabble-rousers in America was the unavoidable topic of the day. And while Wesley did have his own personal views, he would write in his private journal that he wished those, or he would go on to call the Americans in his private journal poor, deluded rebels. So he had his own private views, but in public, he was sympathetic to those on either side of the issues and sought to foster understanding between both groups. 
He humbly allowed that he might be wrong on the issues. And even if he wasn't, he thought that encouraging devotion to God was more important. Now, Wesley would flop back and forth between where he stood on the issue of the colonists, but he eventually wrote a letter to those in the colonies. And while he criticized those in England in this letter who seemed to wish the downfall of the throne, which was hyperbole perhaps, but maybe a lot like the language we hear nowadays. He finished the letter, however, by imploring the colonials to put aside their differences, to put away their sins, to honor the king and obey their rightful sovereign. As you might imagine for the record, this letter was not well received in the colonies by those who read it. The only reason why it did not adversely affect the cause of Methodism here in America was because the Methodists here intercepted the shipments of the document and destroyed them. It would seem that our Methodist brothers and sisters are quite capable of having tea parties as well. There are times when I hear messages and I wish I could intercept them or I read things from other believers and wish I could intercept them. Maybe you feel that way too. Maybe you feel that way about this sermon. I don't know. <laughs> John Wesley took his sides on the issues of his day and at least from our perspective, we might say he took the wrong side. But regardless, even while taking his stand and even while having his personal views, the people of his day were experiencing division distance, discord, and dissension. And Wesley sought to understand and humanize those on each side. And in his public writings, he urged peace, harmony, and mutual understanding between the two. He approached the matters humbly and not hubristically. In his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, Pastor Scott Sauls makes this observation. It may surprise us to know that there was political diversity among Jesus' disciples. Included in the 12 are Simon, a zealot, and Matthew, a tax collector. This is significant because zealots worked against the government, while tax collectors worked for the government. As far as we can tell, Simon remained a zealot, and Matthew remained a tax collector, even after they started following Jesus. Despite their opposing political viewpoints, Matthew and Simon were friends. And Matthew wanted us to know this in his gospel. Matthew's emphasis on a tax collector and a zealot living in community together suggests a hierarchy of loyalties, especially for Christians. Our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom must always exceed our loyalty to an earthly agenda, whether political or otherwise. We should feel more at home with people who share our faith but not our politics even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. Despite what you might hear on TV and social media, we aren't given instruction in the Bible on how to vote. And it's a fleeting thing anyway. We all love America, I trust that we do. And we're thankful that America is here. But it is conceivable that there will come a day when America is not here. I don't wish that certainly not in my lifetime or my children's lifetime, but it is conceivable. But American politics isn't God's plan to save the world. Jesus is. And the church is the vehicle that he uses through that. And the church is the one thing that will stand forever. It is inconceivable that the church will not outlast all the countries of this world. <laughs> 
Jesus promised us that. We aren't given instruction on how to vote, but we are given instruction on how to treat each other and live as followers of Christ in this world. How to not be like the world that defaults to anger and sowing dissension. And we should be disturbed at how much faith is paraded around by politicians and personalities from both sides to do that very thing, to stir up dissension. So how do we respond in our day? In another book called Evangelism as Exiles, Living as, uh, living on mission as strangers in our own land, missionary Elliot Clark says this, our secular world is increasingly suspicious of religion. Thus the days of attractional evangelism are waning. The times of re relying on the gravitational pull of our social standing to bring people into church, a Christian camp, or a revival meeting are all but gone. The time is coming and is here now when the world won't listen to our gospel simply because they respect us. However, they might listen if we respect them. This has become the reality in which we live, but it doesn't have to stay that way. The distance and dispersion that James's congregation experienced came at the hands of a group that included Paul before he became a believer. But the earliest believers were slow to anger, and Paul did become a Christian. And as reluctant as they were at first, the earliest Christians received him into their fellowship, discipled him, and sent him out. And he became one of the most prominent members of their movement. Their ability to love and live like Jesus towards Paul produced the righteousness of God, not their anger. Not just in Paul, but also in those who came after him, including us. It created space in their lives for, different, for people different than them that they were not naturally inclined to like. Would an angry, bitter response to fight back against the persecution the earliest Christians were facing have produced Paul the apostle? Or would it have likely entrenched him as Paul the persecutor? And what would it have meant for us today? Where would we be without the response of the earliest Christians? To be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In our interactions with people around us or online, or in the way we think about people on the other side of the aisle from us, in some cases the other side of the church aisle, let us be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And let's pray and leave room in our hearts for the possibility that just as he did with Paul, God might use those who stone us today to shepherd us tomorrow. Let's pray for that and leave room in our hearts that just as he did with Paul, God might use those who stone us today to shepherd us tomorrow. 1974, an important year because of the aftermath of the Boston Tea Party and the ensuing crackdown on Boston by Parliament. It was also a pivotal election year in England with many opinions about freedom and rebellion and who would end up on the right side of history. While John Wesley supported the British side of things, he was well aware that there were those in England who did not. And on the eve of this election for Parliament, John Wesley wrote this in his journal. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them, one, 
to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. These are not hollow words. This was a time of division, distance, discord, and dissension. There were a lot of, there was a lot of hyperbole on each side, a lot of anger on each side. The years after this would, would lead to bloodshed. These are not hollow words by John Wesley. Take care that your spirits, your hearts are not sharpened against those that vote on the other side, those that disagree with you. Because Wesley knew the Bible doesn't tell us how to vote, but it does tell us how to treat each other, to avoid division and dissension, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, and to be doers of the very word that tells us to love our enemies because while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. Now, John Wesley was one pastor in a particular place in time who had his private convictions, but who publicly sought mutual understanding and harmony between opposing sides. God used one pastor's response to the division, distance, discord, and dissension around him in the 18th century to show how we might biblically respond to each other in election years even in the 21st century. James led one church in a particular place in time. They couldn't and didn't try to influence the government that they lived under, yet God used one church's response to the division, distance, discord, and dissension around them in the first century to set the course for how all churches should respond, including those in the 21st century. And we, First Baptist Church of Huntsville, Alabama, are one church in a particular place in time. We likely cannot change or even influence the national conversation that is happening around us, but we can be fully responsible for the way we engage it. And by being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, by being humble, by being doers of the word and not hearers only. Perhaps God can use us to set a course for the future as well. We're gonna close now in a time of invitation. I am gonna ask that you stand. We won't sing, but we will have music. And I'm going to invite uh, anyone who may feel led and moved to uh, come down front to meet me. We'll have other pastors as well. Um, we'll do a few verses. I know it's a strange time with coronavirus and maintaining social distance and, and those things, but sometimes in our strangest times is when God most moves. So if you feel led to give your life to Jesus, to rededicate your life to Jesus, to join a family of faith, we invite you to come forward during this time, and we'll close a few minutes after that with a word of prayer.